Um, our reading this morning is from Luke chapter 3, verse 21, to Luke chapter 4, verses 13. Um, so here at Village, the Bible is the foundation of everything that we believe and everything that we do. Um, we believe that the scriptures are God-breathed and God-inspired. Um, through these scriptures, God reveals himself to us and reveals his character to us. And because of this beautiful truth, um, we hold the scriptures in the highest regard. Um, if you don't have a Bible today, there are Bibles at the back. Um, we would really love if you don't have one at home to take one home with you as a gift from us. Um, so let us hear the Lord speak to us this morning from Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to Luke chapter 4, 13. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josech, the son of Judah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kusam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Mina, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Aphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. 
For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. Father, I thank you that we can come here this morning and we can worship you together as a church. Um, I pray that whatever cares, whatever worries, whatever concerns of the week that has passed and the week that lies ahead, that we can leave them at the door and that we can come and bow ourselves before you humbly. Father, I thank you for your word, for what it means to us. I pray that we will be able to study it together, that we will all get something from it this morning, and that we can rest in the assurance of the truth that it provides. Father, I pray for Nathan as he comes to preach. I pray that you will use him. I pray that you will give him the guidance that he needs. Um, we ask all these things in your name. Amen. You hear me? Good morning. There we go. Um, well done to Hannah. Um, she didn't know what she was getting into this morning. I told her. Uh, I told her this morning. The key is to just read it as quickly as possible, uh, and with as much confidence as possible, and no one will question uh, her otherwise. So she did great. Uh, I'm trying to get this stupid mic fixed here. Bear with me one second. Uh, it's so good to be with you here this morning. Um, my name is Nathan. I'm one of the leaders here at our church. Uh, Pastor Elder is out of town. Uh, he's at a conference, but uh, he should be back next week as we continue to look at the book of Luke. We have a ton uh, to go over this morning. We have a lot of scripture, so we're just going to kind of dive right in, if you will. Um, we're going to be looking today at three specific things. Uh, we're going to be first looking at the baptism of Jesus. We're going to be looking at the uh, genealogy of Jesus, and then thirdly, we're going to be looking at the temptation of Jesus. So that's kind of how it's broken up here today. And on the surface, it, it may not seem like any of this has any connection, uh, but as we look closer, we're going to find that there is a common thread that kind of holds these three portions of Scripture together, and that is dealing with this crucial question, who is the Son of God? Who is the Son of God? Um, and as we look into this first section of scripture this morning, uh, we read about the baptism of Jesus. In verse 21, it says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Uh, so last week, uh, Elder uh, looked at John the Baptist in the beginning of Luke 3. Today, we find John, he's baptizing all of these people at the Jordan River, and along comes Jesus wanting to be baptized. Now, if, if you're like me, I'm kind of, you have to pause there and question, like, why in the world would Jesus want to be baptized? 
Because this, this baptism that he is wanting to receive is a baptism of repentance. It's a, it's a baptism that says uh, that I have a need to go to God with my sin, and you're asking for forgiveness and repentance of what you've done. But Jesus, as we know, is a, is a perfect, sinless human, and that he has done nothing wrong to repent of. And so one of the things, there's several things that we have to kind of grapple with, and that's one of the things. Why would Jesus want to be baptized? And I believe there's really kind of three main reasons why Jesus was baptized. There's two that we share with Jesus, that we would want to be baptized, and we actually share the same reasons for being baptized. But Jesus also has kind of a third reason why, he, why he's baptized. The first reason that Jesus would want to be baptized is for identification. Now, when we're baptized... Uh, we go under the water, and on one hand, we're, we're dying to our old way of life, and we're being kind of brought out of the water, kind of it's symbolic of we, we are a new creation. And on the other hand, we're also identifying with Christ's death, and when we're coming out of the water, we're, we're identifying with his resurrection, which he's promised to all who place their trust in him. In Colossians 2.12, it reads, "...having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith." in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. But not only are we uh, wanting to be baptized because we want to identify with Christ, Christ also wants to identify with us. Um, Travis uh, spoke a couple of weeks ago about you know, Christ being fully human and fully God. You know, he wants to identify, um, he identifies with the human condition, though he himself is not stained by sin. Jesus desires to be identified with his creation, which is it's kind of a bonkers concept, right? That the creator of all the heavens and all the earth wants to identify with his creation. Another reason why, that we are baptized along with Jesus is for the purpose, is, is because it's an act of obedience. So identification, but also obedience. Uh, for us, we are commanded uh, as his followers to be baptized as we've made the decision to follow him. In, in Mark 16, 16, Jesus says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. It's asked upon us as, an, as, as we are following Jesus that we make that decision early on that we're going to be baptized. We are baptized as an act of obedience to Jesus. Yet Jesus also chose to be baptized as an act of obedience as well. Um, one thing that we, we learn from Jesus is that he only does what the Father and what the Spirit ask him to do. In John 5, 19, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Jesus was baptized as an act of obedience to the Father. He never did anything without the Father and the Holy Spirit involved. Um, and so we have identification, we have obedience, but then there's a third reason on why Jesus was baptized, and that's as an act of substitution as an act of substitution. You might recall in, in, in the other gospel, uh, in the book of Matthew, uh, in chapter 3, John has, a, hard, has a, a lot of difficulty with Jesus coming to him to be baptized. He asks Jesus, why are you doing this? Don't you understand we should actually switch places? You know, that I should be baptized by you. John the Baptist, I should be baptized by you, Jesus. And that's when Jesus is baptized, he's actually agreeing with that. Yes, actually, that's exactly what is needing to happen. I'm, but I'm going under as your substitute. I'm facing death so that you might never have to face the second death. I'm going to be resurrected in power so that you might join me in that resurrection. 
And so Jesus is baptized not only for identification, but for obedience and substitution as well. These are all, all reasons why he is chosen to be baptized. And so uh, as we read further in this, uh, in this passage here, uh, Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River, and it says immediately the heavens open up. Now, I was thinking on this this week, and usually the way I think about it is, uh, you know how the Simpsons, you know how that intro is where like, and so like the clouds kind of part ways and the beam of light comes down. That's kind of the way I just kind of visualize that. But it says that the heavens open up here. Like this is something supernatural is happening here. And so uh, we, you know, just as uh, Moses was kind of able to peek into the promised land before his death, the, the disciples and everyone around were able to glimpse into heaven and see that heavenly promised land. And it says here, Jesus was praying, and it says, the Father in heaven proclaimed these words. Everyone was able to hear it there. It said, you are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. And this is really the highlight. If you're thinking about Jesus up to this point, this is really truly the highlight of his life. He's on the mountaintop right here. He receives validation directly from the lips of the Father. He receives honor. God finds delight in who he is and what he's done. And these words are going to be words that will give him strength in the days to come as he faces Satan in the wilderness. Now, as, uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, we're going to go from this kind of this short section on the baptism. And then all of a sudden, as you remember, we went into a very lengthy genealogy. And for all of our sakes, I'm going to not necessarily skip over it, but I'm just going to kind of because um, let's be honest, when we're reading through that, we just kind of skim, right? We, we either just go ahead and skip to chapter four, let's just be honest, or we just skim. Is there any important names? That, oh, there, there's David. There he is. Yep. Oh, there's Abraham. Like you'll kind of skim through the names. But there's, there's some things I just want to pull out from that section that I think we're understand. Now, out of, all, out of all the gospel accounts, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You have uh, two of the gospels mention a genealogy, Matthew and Luke. But they're not the same, like if you compare the two, they're not the same genealogies. Um, in fact, if you look at Matthew's, it's, it's really like a proper Jewish genealogy. It goes back to Abraham. But if you look at Luke's here, what does Luke end with? It says, son of Seth, uh, son of Adam, then son of God, right? And so whereas Matthew was trying to portray Jesus, guys, Jesus is truly the king of the Jews, he, he has a lineage that goes back all the way to the beginning of our faith with Abraham. Luke is really trying to show that his lineage goes all the way back to the beginning of time. That God offers salvation to all people, not just the Jewish people, to every single person, not just the children of Abraham. Um, and because of this fact, what Luke is trying to help us to understand is that we can trust that Jesus is truly the Son of God. We can truly trust that Jesus is the Son of God. Because uh, this, this, these portions of Scripture, he's going to say in the baptism, where God the Father proclaims, you are my Son. With you I'm well pleased. The Father is going to proclaim, this is my Son. I'm well pleased with what he's doing. This is my Son. He is the Son of God. And then Luke here is going to go into a very complex genealogy to show that Jesus is right to him. By his bloodline. He has a direct line to the throne. 
And as we're going into the, to the kind of the narrative of the temptation of Jesus, we're going to see that Jesus uh, maintains the very character of God, the ethics of God. He has the nature of God. He's going to pass the test. He's going to prove to be genuine. And so Luke, in, this, in these three sections, these portions, are all going to be basically evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. And it's not even this, this portion of Scripture. It's the whole of the Gospel of Luke will be spent arguing that Jesus is truly the Son of God. He will have power over nature. He will curse the fig tree. He will calm the storm. He will walk on water, have power in the dark forces. There's going to be exorcisms that are going to take place. He's, he's going to have power over sickness. He's going to heal people. He's going to have power over death. We will, ex- we will experience resurrection. Jesus has all authority to the claim that he is the Son of God. He, he not only talks the talk, but he walks the walk. He is able to do that. And that's what Luke is trying to point be fully trusted that he is the Son of God. And then we get into this, this, this next section of the, the temptation of Jesus. We're going to spend some time here today because um, there's a lot for us to kind of unpack and, and understand about this today. It says here in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 4, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. So like... In one of the greatest understatements of history, Luke says, hey, this guy who hasn't eaten in 40 days, he's hungry. Like, yeah, yeah, we, we thought that. You know. And so Jesus here, it says that he's led uh, from the Jordan River into uh, the wilderness. Now, now, I was kind of wrestling with this this week. What, what is this wilderness? What does it look like? And I, I kind of imagine kind of like a desert, sandy kind of place where there wasn't you know, anything around. But this is really like a, a stony kind of barren place. It wouldn't have a lot of life kind of uh, around it. I don't know if you've ever been to the Burren, kind of outside of Galway. It's just kind of a, a stony, rocky place. It's just, you go there, and there's, that's pretty much it. Um, and that's kind of it. It's, it's a place that Jesus could pray. He could be isolated. Um, he could prepare for his upcoming ministry. But the main thing is that he could just be alone with the Father. But yet, isn't isn't this life, if you, if you kind of compare and contrast what's happened up, this, up to this point, Jesus experienced this powerful moment of spiritual baptism, but then he goes into spiritual battle. He immediately hears this voice from heaven praising him, and then he hears this voice from hell. One voice is of comfort, another voice is of conflict. He experiences the refreshing water at baptism, then goes to this unrefreshing wasteland of a place. And maybe you can relate to kind of that dynamic. You you go to a Bible study, you go to your MC, you feel like God really showed you something, that you felt like there was just a great prayer time, or you had a, you you just grew in the knowledge and understanding of who God was, you understood his love better for you in those, those times, and then you're on your way home and you blow up on your spouse. Um, Or you've, you've, Maybe you've made the decision, you know, today, you know I, I, I haven't done well with my money. I'm going to be more generous. Be more generous. Lose your job. Um, you know, I, I was just thinking uh, last month, I, my, my wife gave me a trip to go to Donegal for, for a few days as like a Christmas present. Just a time to kind of pray and read and just kind of uh, go on walks and just spend some time with God. And first day, I'm gone. Boys, both my boys get COVID. 
It's kind of one of those things. Satan will always look for opportune moments. It's never when it's convenient for us. Um, Something that is a little bit more deep here for for me personally. In 2020, my wife and I, um, you know, we were uh, waiting on for about a year for the government to approve Village to sponsor our visa so that we, we might move here called Belfast Our Home. So we were waiting and waiting, and last summer, or that summer specifically, um, our boys were out of school, and John um, from, from East called me and told me the good news that the government had finally approved our visa. And I, I just remember that moment, I was, I was, I was weeping. Uh, it's kind of weird Zooming with a guy and weeping, but it was, just, it was overcome with emotion. I was so excited. That was like the highlight because we get to call Belfast our home. This is something we've been praying for, planning for, thinking about for, for years at that point. And so then immediately I'm like, Oh no! Uh, oh, we, we've got to pack bags. We've got to sell stuff. We've got to uh, book flights. We've got to figure out where, where we're going to live. Uh, there's so many things that had to happen very quickly, and so we just kind of get in this frantic uh, mode of what are we going to do? And so um, uh, my wife and I, we just kind of get in that mode. And our boys are out of school. It's summertime, and we're living with their grandmother at the time. And so I, we just ask, can you watch the boys for a little bit? Give us some time just to not have to be a parent for just a little while so that we might be able to uh, really focus and knock some of this stuff out. And so she said, yeah, that's fine. I'll, I'll take the boys to the beach. And so they went with their cousins. We thought that'd be great, right? They'd be, they'd be great. They'd have a lot of fun. We'd be able to focus and get our stuff done. And while we're kind of doing all this work, Emily just felt like this, this deep sense to pray for our boys. And so I just we were working, and all of a sudden she stopped later on. About an hour after we kind of found out what happened, um, our youngest, Titus, almost drowned. Um, and uh, basically the, the events of that are that he was, he was out with his cousins and he had one of those um, kind of those boogie boards. I, I don't know what they call them here. But they have one of these things they're floating on. Um, and so he's out, but he can, he can a little bit swim, but he's not really a good swimmer. Brother Gideon, good swimmer. Titus is not a good swimmer. And so he's out there floating, and the board kicks out from underneath him. And he is unable to really get back to the board. He tries. He's struggling, um, but he can't do it. Now, the grandmother is watching the kids, but she thinks our boy is someone else in the water because there's a lot of kids out kind of playing. And so Titus, in that moment, he does the only thing he knows what to do because he can't touch the bottom. He just sticks his arm out of the water like this. And it was really God's providence because Gideon saw him in that moment with his hand out of the water, swam to him, and was able to pull him back onto the boogie board. And so in that moment, we find out what happens, and we're, we're just we're devastated because in, this, in like a two-hour span, we experience the highest of highs, and we experience the lowest of lows. You know, tears is, is a counterfeit faith. Um, it, we are, as people of God, going to face difficulty, and testing. Why, why, am I, why, am I, why did I go with that story? Why did I explain all of that? Um, I'm telling you that because if you don't understand that principle, you're going to have a very difficult time with your faith. Um, because if you don't understand that, what will end up happening, you'll end up beating up on someone. In that moment, I was so enraged at the grandmother. <laughs> why weren't you watching my kid? And then it turned inward. Nathan, you're, you're, a, you're a horrible parent. Why didn't you teach your son how to swim better? And then it turned to God. God, why did you do this? Like, didn't you, like we're going through all this. Like, we're so excited, then this happens. Like, why are you doing this? Always seek someone to blame. But if you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus lived a perfect life better than anyone else could ever live. 
and yet he faced more trauma, pain, heartache, difficulty, testing than any of us could ever imagine. That is a normal thing for us as followers of Jesus that we have to understand. If we could further digest this kind of this concept for a moment, there, there is this deep belief that exists, I believe, in all of us that, you know, let, let me just ask this question. What would happen if you really cleaned up your life? I mean, you were able to uh, get rid of all your bad habits. You had the best attitude. You had no bad thoughts at all. You were able to completely clean up your life. Um, you were able not only to clean up all the bad stuff, but you had a life of complete justice, a life of complete love. How would you expect your life to go? I think most of us would say, yeah, I deserve a good life because I'm doing all the right things. There's this undergirding belief that if I do good and I live wisely and I live a good enough life, I deserve that. But again, that's not what we see from the life of Christ. Um, it will be an uphill battle as we, we will be tempted and we will be tested. Um, and we will face opposition. Let's look at that first temptation that Jesus, is face, that Jesus will face here. Um, verses 3 and 4. It says, The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. So, so Jesus has reached the conclusion of, of his fast at this point, so I'll try to make sense of this. Uh, again, it's been 40 days in the rocky wilderness. He's, there's no reason at all that he can't eat something. He's, he's kind of on his way back to the city where he might can have a meal. Uh, but at this point, he's broken his fast, and I'm sure as he's walking by, I know I would, every single thing that you're because you're so hungry, you're thinking of food, that looks like a loaf of bread. That looks like a T-bone. That looks, you're just seeing all these things and you're kind of imagining, I am so hungry. That is all I can think of at this point. And so Satan is essentially saying, Jesus, you're, you're fast. Dude, it's over. You have the power. Just, just turn those stones into bread. I mean, that seems completely innocent. There's three things really doing in this temptation that we can kind of try to understand what's going on. First off, we talked about Jesus being fully man and fully God. It's, it's really an attack on his kind of duality. Because in this moment, Satan is basically saying, what, let's see if, you have, if you're more fully human. Or let's see if you're more fully God in this moment. Let's, let's just kind of test that. Let's, let's get into the waters and see what that is like. And so Jesus says, if you are the son of God, like, you are fully human, right, Jesus? Because if you are fully human, you know that every human in this situation, if they had the power, they would take care of their own needs. I mean, if you had the power and you were able to do that, like, of course, I mean, that doesn't take anything. It doesn't do anything. And so he's going to turn that, that stone into bread. Every human in that situation would do that. And if he is truly the son of God, surely he has the power to do it. So why don't you prove that you're the son of God and, and really do that? And so he's, it's really an attack on, are you fully human and fully God? So that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is that Jesus, if, if Satan was successful in this moment, Satan would have uh, allowed him for Jesus to use his powers for selfish ends, for selfish motives. But here's the thing. J Jesus never in his entire life, he never acted selfishly, not even once. Every miracle that he ever performed was for the ministry of others. Every healing, every exorcism, every miracle over nature, everything was for other people. And the third thing, 
I believe Satan is trying to put a wedge actually between Jesus and the Father. He's actually trying to strike at their relationship. Because if you look here, it says, if you are the Son of God, you should command these stones to turn to bread. He's asking Jesus to act independently of the Father. He's, act, he's asking him to act independ, independently of the Spirit. Do this, on, do this in your own power. You have, obviously, the power to do it. You should prove that you are the Son of God. And if there's like one big concept that I wish you would just kind of take away today, it's this, that every temptation that comes from Satan is, is an attempt to strike at our relationship between us and God. Every single time that there is a temptation from Satan, the, the end goal is not to get you to do more sin. It's, it's actually an attempt, it's a maneuver to try to get you to not love God, not serve God. He's trying to break your relationship with God. Now, I do, I do want to clarify, we all have this propensity, we all have this desire to sin, to do evil, to despise wisdom, to to walk in unforgiveness, to walk in darkness. We all have that kind of within us. But again, and oftentimes, um, oftentimes when we sin, it's because our flesh is at work, not because of temptation. So I do want to make that distinction. But if you are truly being tempted by Satan, he is seeking to, pl- to place division between you and God. He's tempting us to place our identity in our, in our hobbies, our, our sin, our politics, our, our relationship, our culture, and that we might place our identity in that rather than in Jesus. We see this in the, the people of Israel. They, they wanted to be like all the other nations, and so they wanted a king just to be like other nations. They didn't want God as their king. And so Israel was tempted to take on a king, and through that temptation, Satan was using that as a way to put a wedge between Israel and God. We see this in Samson. Uh, Samson was, uh, his identity became wrapped in how can I find pleasure? In what ways can I find pleasure? Because that's what I'm going to do, rather than in finding pleasure in God. And so Satan used the temptations of pleasure to strike at the relationship between him and God. We see this with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, that, that God really saved that to you. Why is he withholding his very best from you? Don't you understand that he's, he's holding back his, his true love for you? Satan is striking at the relationship between Adam and Eve and God. There's, there's that that's happening. And so we have to see that every single time Satan is tempting us, it's, it's, his end game is to put a wedge between us and the Father. And yet Jesus, first man failed when he was tempted with food and Adam. Jesus was able to triumph. He was able to withstand this temptation. And we, we, need to, we must know that Jesus can be trusted as our example. Jesus can be trusted as our example because we see how he responds here. He responds with scripture. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And this comes from uh, Deuteronomy 8.3, which says, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you uh, know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Um, in the wilderness, the Hebrews were, were given food each and every day to remind them that God was their daily need. Everything. He was their source. He was their hope. And for Jesus here, the word of God is what he relies on. 
Let it, let it be said that we are the same, that we would trust in the, the written word of God, that we would uh, begin to, to meditate on it, think on it, that we, that we'd study the scriptures for ourselves so that we might, uh, when we are facing temptation, be able to overcome. But Jesus, not only, I believe, not only uh, was, obviously, he was very familiar with the word of God written, but I believe in that moment, he was reminded of the, the verbal word of God. You are well pleased in you. So when Satan says, if you are the son of God, he's reminded of God saying, you are my son. I am well pleased in you. And so he is able to overcome not just because of things written long ago, but in the moment that just happened at his baptism. It, Jesus was so saturated with the scriptures that uh, he, it was like a reflex. Any time he spoke, he was able to regurgitate uh, the scriptures. He was able to, um, to, to share the, the mind of God, the, the understanding of God. May we, may we do the same. May we be able to preach the gospel to ourselves. May we daily be reminded of his love for us. Um, but even though he is so um, able to um, rely on scripture, I think, it's, I think it's very important that we understand what he doesn't do here. Um, there's one thing he doesn't do. He doesn't say, Satan, go away. You're bothering me. <laughs> he could have. He had the authority to do that, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't, he doesn't just reject Satan. And I think there's a lesson for us to learn there as well, because we can, but if we, if we Satan and don't turn to Jesus, that will create an, another set of problems. Because what's happening when we say no to Satan, we, we actually turn inward. We turn into ourselves. We look at our own morality, our own abilities, our own record. When we face temptation, we must not only reject Satan, but we actually, we actually must turn to Jesus in the process. That second temptation that Jesus faces, uh, verses 5 through 7 in chapter 4. It says, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Um, so, so what's going on here? Again, there's some things here that just are kind of odd for us. Uh, most biblical commentators believe that Jesus is kind of given a vision here uh, because, I mean, you can go to Mount Everest and like, you can only see so many kingdoms. It says that he was able to see all the kingdoms of the world. And what Satan is offering him is all the power and all the authority and all the might. But even more so, do you know what's more striking here? Jesus is truly offering Jesus in this moment. He's offering him a crown without a cross. He's saying, you worship me, there's a big shortcut here. You don't have to go to Calvary. You don't have to make that, you don't have to make that ascent up that hill. You can have the mountain here without having the valley. You don't have to go through that turmoil. You can have Rome and all the nations of the world, and you don't take one side. And yet, how does Jesus respond? He, in verse 8 it says, and Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Uh, Jesus, again, quotes the very word of God. He, he quotes Deuteronomy 6.13. In the first temptation, it kind of echoed Adam. Remember it, um, where Adam failed in, with, with the food? Um, Christ was able to succeed in that temptation. In the second temptation, it echoes Israel in the wilderness. 
in the, in the wilderness, they struggled with rebellion and against God, against Moses, and, and idolatry. And for 40 years, they end up wandering in the wilderness. And Jesus wandered in the wilderness for 40 days. It was symbolic. And unlike Israel that was unable to pass that test, Jesus is able to pass this temptation. And then we go to the third temptation. It says in verses 9 through 11, And Satan took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, note that he brings that up again, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So this is an odd temptation that that is is taking place because he goes to the top of the temple. Now there, um, kind of scholars say that there was a a portion of the temple that kind of overlooked this this valley um, and the ancient temple, and it was about 450 foot drop from from that point in the temple to the bottom of the valley. If you jump from there, there's you're going to survive that. And so what Satan is saying, you should do a pointless miracle here. You should just kind of jump and just kind of float down to earth. What he's really saying is that, Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. You can still draw a crowd. You don't have to do all this. I want you to set an example. I don't want you to become a savior. I want you to to set an example. I don't want you to be a sacrifice. I want you to be an example. Again, he says that phrase, if you are the son of God, it's an attack on his relationship He's wanting uh, Jesus to abuse his power, essentially. He wants him to not rely on the Father. He wants to make him presume that the Father is going to protect him from falling if he did that. He, he, he doesn't really care about his sonship anymore. It's really just an attack on his relationship with God the Father. He wants Jesus again to act in a selfish manner. You don't have to do what you're planning on doing. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to go through all of that. But there's, there's another thing that we have to address here um, in verses, what is it here, Not, uh, 10 and 11. The very word of God. He quotes scripture. He does that. He did the same thing with Adam and Eve in the garden. So, let me just say, good luck saying no to the devil when he's tempting us, because he knows the Bible better than you. He knows the Bible better than me. He knows the Bible better than Pope Francis, Martin Luther, John Piper. Satan knows the Bible better than any of us, and he's completely willing to uh, twist it, confuse us, mix truth with error, deceive us. So we, we have to become familiar with Scripture. We have to memorize it. We have to ponder on it, think on it, un- seek to understand it. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we have to trust in Jesus. Jesus responds here in verse 12, and Jesus answered him, not but the Lord your God to the test. Again, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6, where Israel failed, he's going to succeed. And lastly, in verse 13, it says, and when the devil had ended every single temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. We see here that Satan kind of goes on a tactical retreat. He's going to fight another day. We do know that Satan is going to show up again to tempt him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And where Adam is, again, he failed in the Garden. The second Adam, Christ, is going to overcome. He's going to obediently take up on the cross. He's going to lay his life down for you and I. 
Um, now, I, I must say that last point I made, which was that Jesus serves as our model, our example, that's true, but that is woefully incomplete. Um, Jesus is our example, but if we're trusting him only as our example, we've, we've kind of missed it today. We must see Jesus not only see him as our only hope. Um, because if we trust in our own abilities, our own integrity, our own heart to overcome temptation, we're going to fall mightily short. Um, if we believe in our own power, we can resist Satan. We're going to fall short. Jesus is able to overcome Satan by obedience and faithfulness to the Father. In fact, Jesus' responses through all the temptations really prove, it actually condemns us, if you will, because Jesus is able to overcome in a way that we never can. We will fail those temptations. We will fail miserably. Really, our truly our only hope is in Christ Jesus. That is our only hope. Because when Adam failed, Christ was victorious. When Israel failed, Christ was victorious. When we fail, Christ is victorious. Luke is saying he is the son of God. We can trust him on that. He is the son of God. He is trustworthy. In 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has, overcome, has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you might be able to endure it. Um, friends, that, that escape is not really necessarily a plan. It's not a three-step program to avoid temptation. It's a person. Like, that's our means of escape. Jesus is our means of escape. His perfect, sinless life, his ability to overcome temptation. It shows us truly how imperfect we are, but it even more so shows how truly perfect Christ is. Jesus is truly fully man and fully God. And man, we mess up. We, we do things out of convenience. We do things out of ease. We do things out of comfort. We respond to temptation oftentimes with our own self-interest in mind. Uh, Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but is in every respect has been tempted just as we are without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we're tempted, Christ understands what we're going through. And when we fail, we can go to the throne of him, of the throne and, and receive the grace and mercy that we need in our time of need. Hebrews 2.18 says this, for he, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And it's not a plan, it's a person. Christ is the one who can help us in our times of temptation. We can go to him, we can go to him because every single time, as I said earlier, it's an attack on our relationship. Satan wants to destroy the relationship that we have with God. When we feel the weakest, let us, let us fall at the throne of grace. Let us run to him because he will be there to help us in our time of need. He will extend grace and mercy to us again and again and again. And when we fail those tests in our homes, in our workplaces, in our relationships, 
because he passed those tests. We will never be able to overcome in our own power, but Christ did. He did it on your behalf. That's good news. That is great news for all who call in the name of the Lord. We can trust in him. He is our hope and friend. And we can trust on him. We can call on the name of the Lord in those moments. Let us pray. Jesus, we, we, do, we do things out of self-interest so much of the time. We do things out of ease. We take the easy road. We take shortcuts, Lord. Thank you f- that you didn't. Thank you for overcoming. Thank you for being our escape. Thank you for extending grace and mercy when we screw up. Thank you for forgiving us our sins. We can run to you. And as we sing earlier, as we, as we share that scripture, you separate it as far as the east is from the west. You, you don't consider those sins any longer. You, you give us grace and mercy, Lord. Thank you for that. Let us run to you. When we are being tempted and when we are, being, when we are going through moments of, of weakness and struggle and self-pity, let us run to you. Help us, God. We need your help. We can't do it in our own power. We're going to fail each and every time. We need you, Lord. For this, Lord, help us and guide us, we pray. Amen.